Egypt. Uh, that word would have spoken uh, in, in an ominous way to our forefathers and foremothers. When they heard the stories passed down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob down to Moses, and they were put into writing, that word Egypt would have spoken to the Israelites. It would have spoken to the generation of Israelites that suffered there in Egypt and that were eventually brought up from there. It spoke to them about the last place on earth that they ever wanted to go back to. Why? Egypt was a place of injustice. Just think about the story of Joseph here. Of suffering, torture, pain, sorrow. Worst of all, worst of all though, it was a place of hopelessness that God was no longer with them. For the Israelites, just hearing the name Egypt must have meant to them, perhaps, what Auschwitz means to the Jews today. Darfur means to many Sudanese brothers and sisters. Or even for historic Protestants, perhaps something like what Paris means to the, meant to the ancient, the old Huguenots. Our story was written about 400 years after the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites went down to Egypt. And it was written to communicate to them that not only was God with them in their liberation, the Exodus, the story of the book of Exodus, but that God was right there with them when they first went down to Egypt. Indeed, we hear here in the story the echo that it was God. In fact, who sent them down to Egypt. God, in fact, even told Father Abraham all the way back in chapter 15. I think I mentioned this verse before, uh, but I'll mention it again in Genesis chapter 15. When God is making his covenant with Abraham, and with Abram, Abraham, uh, one of the things that God says, the Lord says to Abram, is not only that would he make a covenant with Abram and with Abram's children for a thousand generations, his children would be like the sand of the sea and, uh, and the stars of the heavens, but there's also this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. We'll come back to that in just a bit, but this idea that God did it. God did it. And so we're taught again here in Genesis chapter 42 of the providence of God, the, the care of God, the purpose of God, the plan of God, the love of God in action to provide for, to guide, and to be near his children in their times of need. And that's that's how it is for us, too. When we reflect backwards on God's providence in our own particular lives or in the lives of the church, uh, Catholic, or in the lives of our ancient forefathers and foremothers, when we look back, uh, it's a way for us to see how God has led us down the twists and turns of life and all the while providing for us and caring for us. And so we can always look back 
in our lives as believers and say, God worked all things together for my good. We can always say that. We can always say that because God is good. We learn that same thing again here. Let's pray the the Lord speaks to us. We hear his voice this morning uh, in these pages. Notice, first of all, the first five verses, uh, this idea of going down to Egypt. There's there's a drawing down. There's a drawing down to Egypt. Uh, As we learned from from last Sunday, uh, chapter 41, there was a severe famine. It came upon the land of Egypt, and in fact, it had spread to the whole, uh, what we call today, the Middle East. It had spread to this, this great land uh, every people, tribe, language, and people experienced and suffered under famine. Joseph, we saw, though, in his wisdom, his God-given wisdom, had already put in place a plan to protect the Egyptians from famine, and he stored up one-fifth of the grain of Egypt uh, for seven years. For seven years. Uh, it's one, one of the questions that I have uh, is this. If the famine was seven years long, why store up one-fifth of the grain every year? Why not one-seventh? Have you thought about that? Thought about that? We'll, we'll, we'll come to that in just a bit. Jacob and his family are in Canaan, north and just a tad bit east, just up the coast of the Mediterranean from Egypt. And so we have this event of famine, and we have two characters here working in unison, unbeknownst to them, to draw Jacob's family down into Egypt. We have Joseph, and we have Jacob. Now, let's go forward in our Bibles just for a moment. Look look at Psalm number 105. Psalm 105, you want to turn there quickly? You'll just notice a couple of verses there. In the middle of this great psalm of praise that that, uh, tells of the works of God uh, in the lives of his people in ancient times. We read this in Psalm 105 at verse 16 and 17. The psalmist prays, When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Who's he in that psalm? The Lord? When the Lord summoned a famine? I thought God wanted only our our best, our health, our wealth, our prosperity in this life. When God summoned a famine and, notice, broke all supply of bread, this little parallelism here, God did this. Now, we obviously like verse 17 that God already had sent down in his great plan. He had already sent down Joseph to to save the Israelites. But we don't like verse 16, do we? It's the same God, though, who did both. He prepared to save Israel and us by sending Joseph down ahead of the rest of Israel. And it was God, he did that by providing, sending, summoning a famine. God did both, didn't he? Did God do both? Did God save Israel and do the hard stuff too? Yes. Not just the good providence, the happy stuff. God is in charge and control in some way and somehow in his great wisdom. God's in control of everything, isn't he? Even summoning famines, breaking supplies of bread. So it was God. It was God in his overarching providence, his great purpose, his great plan over all things. 
in this case, over this particular thing, this famine. Paul tells us, for example, to just to reference one New Testament verse, he says that, that it's in Christ we, believers, have obtained an inheritance. And then he goes on to explain how that happened. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So in Ephesians 1 verse 11, predestination is just one little link in the chain of God's great providence. God works all things, and in this case, that particular thing was that he had already predestined us to adoption, to inheritance as sons. God is God, you see. God is God. And so when we read stories like this that, that even can touch our lives and, and can even, we can even uh, uh, reflect upon them and resonate with them perhaps in our own particular struggles and our own particular ups and downs of life, remember, God is God. Our task is just to embrace, to believe. And humanly speaking, let him be God, right? He's God. He's God. God works all things according to his own purpose. Amen? Amen? Now, you may not understand that. I may not understand that. We may never have an answer in this life. But God works everything out. He works the, not just the end goal and result, but the means to get there, the, the path to get there. God is God. For us as believers, it's just for us to believe that. To embrace it. To trust it. And to know that God is going to work it all out in his purpose in the end. So, there's a famine. It was God. It was God who did this. Not just the sending of Joseph, but it was God who did this. It was not just God who, pre who prepared a place uh, uh, for the salvation of Israel to preserve them from death. But all the steps to get there. And what was, the, what was the big step to get there in this story? Famine. The only way to get Israel down to Egypt is to cause a famine. God be praised. God did it his way. Now the main theme I've been mentioning in the Joseph narrative is providence, right? It is God's care, his concern, his providence for all things and especially for his children. So just think for a moment about what our text is saying here. Uh, we have this knowledge that all things come by God's appointments, but also that Jacob here in the story, that Jacob here in the story, so the psalm is reflecting poetically and theologically and so forth upon the story, and in the story we have Jacob commanding his sons to go down to Egypt. We need some food. So which one was it? Did God... Did God do it, or did Jacob do it? Did God in his providence cause the famine that draws them down, or was it Jacob's command to his sons that drew them down? Who did it? <laughs> yes, right? Yes is the answer, yes. Here's one of the wonderful things about, about our faith as Christians. We've got to realize that God... Uh, that, that, that yes, God did it, but God did it and he even uses the, the people in the story, right? So 
in, in theological distinctive terms, talking about God as the primary and uh, cause of all things, but yet he uses secondary causes. And so uh, God is going to save his children. How is he going to do it? Famine, Jacob's desire to save his children, his boys, his, his grandkids, and so forth. That's how God's going to do it. God's going to use camels. God's going to use them eating food and burning calories to get down there. God's going to use them having to fill up wine, uh, skins of wine with wine and water to provide for them. All those little details of life are, in God's providence, the means by which he gets them there. And so he uses the secondary thing of a famine, of, of Joseph's wisdom storing up grain. Right? There's a seven-year famine, but yet every year he's storing up one-fifth. Why? Because he's not just going to sell it to, to, to the Egyptians, but he's going to provide for the Israelites. He's going to have more than enough. More than enough to provide not just for his own people, but for all those who would come from different parts of the world. God uses Jacob's desire to feed his family, to draw Israel down. Right? So, so God is in control here, but he's using all the, the human aspects, all the, even all the, 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 the meteorological aspects of it. So what drew Jacob's sons down to Egypt? It was God, who used Jacob's desire, Joseph's planning, and a severe famine in the land. Here's an example, just a faint human example that I can think of. Back in the day, uh, when, when the kids were little, uh, Carrie Jean would go work on Mondays, and so I'd have Sip and, uh, and, and Caden. When they were little, we would go to Legoland almost every single Monday, either Legoland or SeaWorld, almost every single Monday. So let's imagine that, that you, like me, are, are planning to go to Legoland tomorrow, uh, take your kids to Legoland or maybe SeaWorld. So you plan the end, right? The end is to get there. We're going to go see Shamu, we're going to go uh, to Legoland, we're going to ride some rides, see some shows. But that end's result also includes all the steps to get there, all the means to get there. You gotta wake up, don't you? And you gotta wake up multiple kids who wake up at different times. You've got to get them, get them, get all, all, all get dressed, allowing even your kids to pick their clothes, maybe the wrong kind of clothes, the wrong color, the wrong, the wrong season of clothes, right? So that's another means. You've got to eat breakfast, knowing that everyone has their own choice of cereal in the morning. You've got to make lunch. And you've got to argue over, is it peanut butter and jelly or is it ham and cheese, right? Or whatever. You've got to get the car packed. You've got to make sure you get gas. Make sure that the, you've got tire, uh, air in the tires. You've got to drive to the park. You've got to decide, are we going to park outside the park and walk in? Or are we going to pay for parking? Uh, some, extra, uh, some exorbitant price to pay uh, for the privilege of going into the park, Right? With God, of course, God knows. God knows what everyone is going to do. He knows the end from the beginning. He, he knows all these things. And then all that stuff is part of his plan. So as you as a parent are planning out whether to go to Legoland tomorrow, SeaWorld, and, and all the different steps it's going to take to get there, right? That's just a faint human example of, of, of God, though, the primary cause, using all those secondary things, all those plans, all for his glory, all for his honor. And here it is. He's going to save his children. He's going to keep his promise to bless the children of Abraham like the sand and the stars. Yet there's a famine. He's got to get them down to safety. All these little steps. Now this is not just a mere, uh, a, 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 a mere doctrine for our heads, but 
this is the thing that we find throughout the Word of God. And because of that, this, this idea that God is in control should be like the blood that runs through our bodies. To know that God is in control, that I trust His providence and I, I trust His care so much. This should be what is like nourishing to our souls as Christians. To know that God purposes and plans all things, and especially my good, as a believer. How can this help us to know that God works all things according to the counsel of His will? How does it help us to know that God even uses things like famines? And whatever the harsh tragedy or providence in our life, God uses that for our good. How, how does it help us? It seems like fatalism, some people might think. Well, there's a couple of ways. First of all, as those who've been saved by Christ, we are confident in God as our Father, that He is in control as a Father. He's not, he's not, this is not fate. This is God, our Heavenly Father, who's in control. Secondly, this helps us to pray. That might seem counterintuitive, though. Well, if God works all things end from the beginning, if God knows everything, if God works out everything, if God's in control of everything, if God predestines, we might think, well, there's no need to pray. Is there? Why? Why pray if God works out all things according to his plan? That's the thing? Yeah, that's, that's one of the means. That's one of the little steps on the path, right? From your house to lay the land. That's how you get there. That's how God gets you there. Gotta pray. Right? I mean, He commands us, obviously, but why? Because He uses it. He's already, from all of eternity, He's already purposed and planned that prayer, right? To get you there. In God's wisdom and God's inscrutable wisdom beyond our comprehension. We might think our prayers do nothing. You know, my, what, what are my prayers? You know, they're just sort of throwing, throwing up little pious little wishes up there and, you know. No, these, your prayers is a per personal, uh, intimate link between your praying and God's doing, God's acting in His eternal providence. In one other way, this helps us. This, as we understand this idea, it gives us deeper gratitude for our salvation, our redemption, since Jesus underwent the same kind of providence that you and I go through, that Joseph went through, that the, that the Israelites went through. Hatred, suffering, persecution to bring him to that glorious end of resurrection. Be grateful. Be grateful. I mean, we should be happy. We should be thankful. We should be overwhelmed that our salvation is, wasn't, it didn't just happen out of, out of a random sort of occurrence of events. It all just happened to happen at the right time, right place. Every little step along the way was purposed by God to bring you from earth back to heaven, from sin to salvation. And so there's a drawing down here. That's the big idea. Sorry to take so long, but there you go. Right? God draws, begins to draw the Israelites down. A little bit faster, we'll look at the second point there, verse 6. It's a bigger section of verses, but we'll look at it faster. Uh, verses 6 to 29, the bowing down, right? So you have the sons of Jacob minus Benjamin, can't have the precious, you know, can't have that, 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 that little baby boy, right? You can't have him go down there. Uh, they're, they're, they're drawn down to Egypt. And that leads the sons to bow down before Joseph. 
When they came before him, the story tells us here, they bowed to him, their faces to the earth, right? They're just an abject humility, complete prostration. They're at the women wish of this, this man of the land. Joseph doesn't just recognize them, but notice the story says he remembered the dream that he had as a child. Here's the word of God that, that comes alive in the heart and imagination of Joseph. The prophecy that, that, that his brothers and his family, his, even his parents, would, would humble themselves and bow themselves before him. Chapter 37, right? His two dreams. Now, what's interesting, as I mentioned, uh, Genesis 37 was the first time in Genesis where we were told that someone had a dream that we're not told explicitly that it came from God. God gave dreams, for example, to Abraham, and they came true. In Joseph's case, it, it kind of felt like, well, is he making this up? Is he just this grandiose little kid who has these big ideas about himself? He's too puffed up in his mind about himself? Well, here's the reality. Although the dreams, we're not told, came from God, they're used by God. He saw in his dreams the sheaf uh, standing up and, and the other sheaves, his brothers, bowing down to him. He had another dream that the sun, the moon, the eleven stars are all bowing down to him. Right? It's all coming true here. It's all coming true. Now, Joseph, notice there, there, there's, a, there's a human element here. It's not just that God promised something and it happened. It's sort of sterile. Right? There, there's, there's real humanity here. Joseph takes the opportunity, he takes the time to really rub it in. Doesn't he? I mean, he really rubs it in to his brothers here, doesn't he? It's more than just Joseph doing it. We might, we might say it's God's way of humbling. Humbling his children, the Israelites. Why? To eventually raise them up to save them. So Joseph treats them like strangers. He knows who they are. He treats them like strangers. He speaks roughly to them. He accuses them of being spies, and he keeps saying it, and he keeps driving the nail into the coffin. And that leads to one of the more laughable statements uh, in, in all the stories so far. Notice verse 11. We are honest men. And then they tell their dad that. The dad they lied to about the, the technical dream coat, right? It was covered in blood. How it got covered in blood and so forth. And so Joseph says, in effect, you're honest? You're honest? Okay, fine. You're honest. Let, let's, let's put you to the test. Let's test you out and see. One's going to stay in custody. The rest are going to go home. And you're all going to come back and bring that youngest brother, the apple of dad's eye. You're going to come back down here. So they're all in prison for three days. Joseph releases them. And isn't it interesting how the Bible uses, a lot of times these little three-day kind of things occur, right? I mean, we, we can see something of a, of a, just, it's of interest, the shadowy picture of the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites prepared themselves for three days to meet with God on Mount Sinai. And uh, the prophet said after three days, God was going to, to raise up and revive his his fallen people, and of course, 
makes us think about the resurrection, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're in prison for three days. Joseph releases them to go home. But, but notice again how he, how he just sort of like, what other way to say it? He, he gives them a noogie, right? <laughs> he like drives it home to, the, to his brothers. You know, he just drives it home on their heads, uh, rubs their heads in it. And, and uh, he, he, he puts their money back in there. He puts their money back in their bags. And, and they, they have this, con- their, their consciences are pricked. Notice verse 21. We're guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us. Remember, they, they put him in that pit. They covered it up with a lid. And what do they do? What's the first thing they did when they put him in that pit? They ate. They ate lunch. While their brother was crying out in anguish for his soul, begging us, we did not listen. This, oh, that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben, even the firstborn, drives it home again, even more. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. We call that the conscience, don't we? It's a guilty conscience. It's a guilty conscience. This is what God does. This is what God does. He uses his laws, his commands, to do this to us. That's why Paul says, I would not have known sin apart from the law. God uses his commandments throughout the Bible, his laws, to to cause our hearts and our own haughtiness about ourselves to be bowed down because we're violators of God's laws. We know better. Like Reuben said, we knew better. I said, don't do this. But we did it anyway. And now there's a reckoning for his blood. We all know right and wrong. It doesn't matter if we believe or not. We all know right and wrong. That's not upon our conscience. No, we might try to hide it. We can try to avoid it. We can try to put it uh, you know, in a closet somewhere, put it under a rug somewhere, try to pretend it's not there. Make up fairy tale myths like Sam Harris. Well, you know, we have satellites. We've never seen heaven, so therefore it doesn't exist. We can try all kinds of ways to make ourselves sound really smart and really intellectual uh, and, and, and really bright and really above the fray. We all know right and wrong. It's, not, it's upon our consciences. These brothers knew what they did was wrong. They didn't need a law or a commandment to tell them that. They knew because the, that law and commandment was on their hearts. God does it like this sometimes, doesn't he? That, that conscience, that we know the distinction between right and wrong, that law upon our hearts, that's within our nature as human beings that God has made. Uh, and then we might even hear a command and God lodges that law somewhere in a crack in our heart. And sometimes here, notice, it, it takes a while for that, for that to come to fruition. Sometimes it takes a while for a person that we're talking to about the Lord, about sin and salvation. It takes a while sometimes for that to bear some fruit. It's been, a, it's been several years now that these brothers had d- done that. To their, to their brother Joseph. And, and finally, it sort of all comes home to roost, doesn't it? Sometimes it takes a while, but God is going to produce the fruit 
uh, that he intends and that he desires. So they're drawn down. The brothers are. They're, they, they bow down to their little brother Joseph. And notice they're cast down. Verse 28 to the end. So they left. They left Egypt. They went back home. But God's work wasn't done. God's work wasn't done. One of the brothers on the way up uh, needed to give some of that grain to uh, one of his animals. Opens up the sack. What falls out? A little bag of money. The money that he paid Joseph for the grain. Joseph commanded, in fact, their money be returned. Now, he did it out of kindness. He did it out of kindness. But he also do it to put the fear of God into them. Why? It looks like they have stolen their grain and they put the money back in to hide it. They look as guilty as sin doing this. Now they cannot leave another brother behind like they had done to Joseph. Notice the reaction. What, what is this? Verse 28. God has done to us. They don't play around. They know exactly what's going on. God has done this to us. Why did Joseph do this? Why did the brother, uh, why, did this, why did one of his servants do this? Why did one of you, my, my other ten brothers, do this, right? There's no blame shifting here. They, they know. Why has God done this to us? God's in control. So they tell dad what, what happened. Tell the whole story. And they all open their sacks up to show all the grain they brought back to feed their family to save them from famine. And all the money bags were there intact with every last coin counted. Not just one of them, but all of them had their money. Verse 35, what was their reaction? They were afraid. They were afraid. Joseph, God, is pressing their conscience hard for what they had done. And that causes Jacob to be totally cast down. Not only has Joseph died in his mind? Right? The, the coat they took, they killed an animal, put blood on it. He thought Joseph was dead for several years now. He's gone. And now, Simeon, in his mind, is as good as dead too. Because you've stolen grain. You've taken the money. You didn't pay for it. This is Pharaoh you're talking about. And so for him to send Benjamin down was a sure death for him too. He reasoned. He's utterly cast down. There's nothing he can do. He's helpless. For him to send Benjamin would cause him to go with sorrow down to Sheol, meaning death itself, to die in sorrow. No one wants that. Complete sorrow. Now, what Jacob doesn't know is that to send his son Benjamin down to Egypt... It's not going to bring sorrow to his soul, but salvation. He doesn't see that yet. Some, some, of the, uh, some, some old writers said, uh, you know, trying to read and interpret God's providence, we have to read it backwards. We have to live it out first and then look back upon it, sort of like reading Hebrew letters that to us look backwards. If we try to read forward and interpret what God is doing or might do, it's sort of like 
you know, it's all Greek to me, right? It doesn't make any sense to us. And so the providence of God here is being on, uh, put on display. He doesn't quite see that yet, but this is God's way to bring him and Benjamin and all the family down to save them, to save them. He, he, all he thinks about is, is, is the sorrow that he's going to go through. No, God is providing and preparing a place of salvation. So in God's providence, Egypt becomes the place Israel finds refuge. The place that would be prospered and it would be multiplied like the sand of the sea, the stars of the air, just like God had promised to, to Father Abraham. And so just to conclude, two, two little points. How do we see the promise of God here to save us in Christ? There's the overarching providence of God we've seen. His care, his concern, his purpose, his plan for all things. And we see the very same providence of God here to, to bring to reality that seed of the woman that God had already promised way back in Genesis 3.15. To bring, as God had, uh, had, had given Noah, that name Noah, the one who's going to bring comfort, to bring a new Noah to comfort the comfortless, to bring the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob. We see here the overarching plan and purpose and providence of God, to bring to pass what God has already promised. So how do we see Christ here? We see because this is the next step in the story to lead us down the corridor of history to bring us Jesus Christ. And as I've said before, if, if this story wasn't true, if there wasn't a famine that threatened the lives of Jacob and, and all the Israelites, if there wasn't a famine, you, you wouldn't be saved. None of this would have happened, and Christ would not have been born, humanly speaking. And we see secondly something here that I've already mentioned to you, but just to summarize it, we, we see... Uh, that this overarching providence is a personal providence. It's a personal providence. It's not just that we can read and, and analyze from a distance these ancient texts and say, yes, God did something great, and look at all the types and shadows of Jesus. This is the overarching providence personally for your salvation. For your salvation. Just like in the life of Joseph, Jesus uses all the twists and turns of our lives to draw us to him. And he's done that. We can look back in our, us in our individual lives. We can look back and see all the plots and all the turns and twists of our lives. We can see how God has used it all. Providence is something that is very personal, should be very personal to us. God's working all things out in corner of the council as well. Don't forget, Paul said that in the context of praise. In the context of praising God for it. God works out all things for me personally so that I might come to know Jesus Christ. He did all this for me. He sent Joseph down there for me. He sent a famine upon the land for me. He sent the Israelites down there for me. They struggled for 400 years for me. Amen? Do you believe that? All these stories are about God saving sinners like you and me. Let's give him thanks today. Let's pray.